Yeah, he's like, I've seen a Jason Bourne movie. I'm pretty sure I can do this. I've watched The Americans. <laughs> to Lawyers Behaving Badly. I'm Karen Delaney. And I am Jennifer Judge. And we are back. We're back. We're back. <laughs> Although I feel like I did just see you. So people listening to this uh, are wondering where we've been. But you and I were hanging out and having a grand old time. <laughs> yeah, no, we had I went on vacation uh, last week, just a few days down on the Redneck Riviera in Florida. And uh, I was also just swirling very in a very deep dark pit of I was in a existential yeah. despair after the Allen shooting. So I just didn't feel like doing a podcast last week. And um I'm still gently bobbing along on the waves of that existential <laughs> despair. But no more than usual but, now. So now I'm just at my well, medium no, a little level more, of despair. Still, still still a little more than usual. But here we are. Mm-hmm. And we did have a delightful time together in Austin over the weekend for the release of Steve Vladek's new book, The Shadow Docket, which came out today. And I am eagerly awaiting my copy yes. getting to my house. It is not here yet. <laughs> Mine isn't either. I've gotten like six updates from Amazon about it today, though, because I had pre-ordered it because we're real friends and we pre ordered right and so. <laughs> <laughs> solidarity but Gotta if you get have those pre-order numbers up exactly i think uh steve posted a screenshot that it's like 43 in the amazon top 100 books so i know it's awesome it's awesome for him that's so, us yes that you're was, welcome steve you're welcome steve we got you buddy <laughs> <laughs> it's rachel maddow and us that's what it was yeah yeah <laughs> but we mostly get, us though <laughs> we got to see him and karen over the weekend and hang out with a bunch of awesome people in austin so but that was a wonderful weekend and now it's tuesday and here we are we are recording again and on the one hand it feels like it's been forever and on the other hand i know like i said we we've, we've chatted a lot recently yes <laughs> how is how is the family doing they're good we had a lovely little trip um, you know, minus the whole existential despair piece of it. But my husband's aunt and uncle have a house down in Santa Rosa Beach. And um, it's like they have a private beach there. And the um, my husband's aunt and uncle are literally the nicest people you will ever meet such incredibly generous hosts. And it was also really lovely. My oldest was probably a 22, maybe two and a half years old when he last saw them. So he doesn't remember it at all. But he just took such an immediate shine to them. Even before seeing them, he was just like, all I want to do is throw the football with or play catch with Uncle Rick. When's Uncle Rick going to get here so we can play catch? It was absolutely adorable. Um, So they had a great time. And, you know, of course it was nice to get out and see the beach and see the waves. And now we are back. I'm trying to dig out and Mm -hmm. get work done and get back to the podcast and all that. I think you said what your kids have a week left of school or your oldest. This is the last week, the last week. That's insane. No, this is the last week of kindergarten. Next week is my kids last week of their school. And it's, it blows my mind that this year is over now and school is over and we're squeezing in like a billion different things in those two weeks. So it's going to be a wild, wild time. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. We've got a lot between now and Friday. And then we're done. And I can't believe it. I can't believe kindergarten is over. It went so fast, but also good riddance. And I know that may sound surprising because I, here's the thing before this year, before I had a kid in kindergartner, my main exposure to kindergarten was my own just extremely vague, vague, hazy recollections of it, which are sort of like neutral. I don't remember it being bad or good. And then Facebook posts that I saw from all my friends who had older kids where everybody posts the super cute first day pictures with little Mm -hmm. chalkboards that like, my name is so-and-so and and my, you know, I'm this many years old and this is my favorite thing. My teacher's blah, blah, blah. And it's like, oh my gosh, how how cute. We're so excited about it. My six-year-old, not a fan. (laughs) <laughs> Not a fan. He's doing great. I think once he's there during the day, according to his teacher, he has a wonderful time and he's always been Mr. Social. So he has tons of friends, but uh, we do not like going to kindergarten. <laughs> so it just has, it's been a journey and I wouldn't describe it as the warm and fuzzy, fluffy year that I thought it would be of cozy, cute kindergarten experiences. (laughs) So we're going to close that out and maybe hope that first grade is something that he's a little more enthusiastic about. Onward and upward. That's all you can do with this kind of stuff. I hope so. It's uh, my my youngest has to be out um, the door for the bus at 7.15 in the mornings. And my oldest bus is a little Mm -hmm. later at 7.30. But we are very much looking forward to the end of getting his ass out the door at 7.15 every morning that's going to be a lot less yeah, stress. I, I will not miss leaving the house at 7:20 in the morning mm-hmm. to get him to get him in. Yeah, that won't be sad. So what about you? I haven't seen like I said like we said I haven't seen you since Saturday night yeah, exactly. when we split a bottle of champagne before showing up for this party. So yeah, we got a, <laughs> what's going on? We got appropriately lubricated with champagne before we showed up to this. <laughs> Party. I am good. You know, we are leaving Thursday, my husband and I without the kids to go to Vegas for a long weekend. So I'm very much looking forward to that. It's been a very, very long time since we've had a vacation away from the kids because I think the past two of them, I had to cancel for work reasons. So mm-hmm. it's been a while and we've talked about it. Like my plan when we go to Vegas, we don't gamble. We've seen most of the shows. So we both mostly just focus on eating the best food possible and sleeping and using those blackout curtains to sleep as late as possible, take naps, read, relax. Um, or like the antithesis of a Vegas blowout vacation. No, it sounds incredible. It sounds phenomenal to me and I cannot wait. So that's what we'll be It's amazing. Mm -hmm. I love this for you. Yeah. I, uh, I did tell my husband I may book a spa appointment too. He can just deal with that. And I'm very excited and Basically, like, in the middle of, like, a cleanse, not really a cleanse, but basically, like, we were both like, we should probably not drink till we get to Vegas, because it's going to be, <laughs> it's going to be, we have Vegas. Because then we're then... not going to be doing anything but drinking. <laughs> exactly, we're not going to do anything but drinking. And then the week, a week from Friday, we leave for Cancun in Mexico. That will be another week, basically, of ridiculous amounts of drinking and food and debauchery. And that's with my kids, so it's not that much, but a lot more than we do normally. So my body's mm-hmm. going to go through it for the next few weeks. So I just hope it's ready. Oh, I wow. I just really feel... I know, it's so I hard. I really feel for you. <laughs> it's what really a hardship. Hard. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what's been going on with me. And it's been you know, a while. So we haven't had an opportunity for our hot topic today. I was thinking we would weigh in kind of on the Clarence Thomas news that has all come out since the last time we recorded our podcast. And... A caveat that 
you know, this is a hot topic of ours, so we're not going to delve in depth into everything. And if you want a great podcast that does delve in depth to it, uh, I'm sure you've listened to it already. The five to four podcast on yeah, Clarence Hunt. One. And it's, it's excellent. They go through everything in much more detail, <laughs> much more intellectual detail. Um, mine is much more of a reaction to it. But like I said, pro- after our last episode was released, uh, ProPublica came out with a story about Clarence Thomas and basically that he presents himself as this man of the people, this everyman. And obviously, if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably aware of everything that's gone on. Um, but at the same time, isn't, isn't part of his whole shtick that he like loves eating at Burger King? He's like, I'm such a man of the people. I just love me some BK. Yeah. And there's pictures of him. He's like, my favorite vacation is driving my Walmart or my RV around the country and hanging out in Walmart parking lots. And he's so full of shit. He's so full of shit. <laughs> he, in the meantime, he was saying all this. He was receiving these lavish trips from Dallas billionaire Harlan Crow. Um, and you and I are both from this area. Slash, yeah. slash dictator fetishist, apparently. Yes. <laughs> and we are very well aware of the Crow family here in the Dallas area. I think it was kind of somewhat of a surprise to people who are not around Texas and don't know that name. Um, but yes, Harlan Crow gives him, gives Clarence Thomas and his wife, you know, trips on his mega yacht. I can't remember if it was a mega yacht or a super yacht. One of those. Um, he gives him comp stays at his resort in the Adirondacks. He lets him fly on his private jet. And well, and let's be clear: when we're saying comp stays, we're not talking about a three hundred dollar room at the Hilton or whatever. This is a private resort that he owns mm-hmm. and comparable hotels in the area charge more than a thousand dollars a night yes absolutely and they it's this basically compound that he owns uh i didn't know that this place called bohemian grove actually existed but well that's out in calf isn't yeah, that out in california that was about to that's say, like he the comped men's his, only he comped to stay for this men's only retreat to bohemian grove out in the redwoods of California, which is so weird. Um, you know, he's like I said, his many trips on the private jet, which okay, fine, uh, corruption, corruption. But at the same time, Clarence Thomas has never disclosed any of this in his disclosures uh, for gifts that he's received from others. And so, if you look at the law and you look at what he's required to disclose, you know, basically de minimis hospitality, he's not required to disclose, but obviously using someone's private jet, things like that. So we have all of that. People rush to Clarence Thomas's defense. And then ProPublica comes out with a new story about how Harlan Crow bought Clarence Thomas's mother's home and the lots surrounding it. And that also was never disclosed by Clarence Thomas at the time that that sale went through. Yeah, she's still living in the house and Harlan Crow fixed some of it up. I think he puts in, I don't remember if it's a garage or like one of those, those I'm blanking on the word, like those outdoor, like covered garage yeah, or whatever. Like, mm-hmm. Carport areas. Yeah, carport, that's mm-hmm. what I was thinking. Yeah, so she's still living in the house and Harlan's like, no, like I just want to turn it into a museum one day. Yeah. Uh- Which... <laughs> I'm sure somebody does want to venerate Clarence Thomas by creating a museum for him. And I agree that ostensibly there is value in preserving the child, like Clarence Thomas's childhood home. 
except for the fact that nobody disclosed anything. Yes. And it kind of looks like Harlan Crow paid way more than market value for these properties, which is kind of weird. Like, you don't get to be a billionaire by spending way more money on things than they are actually worth, unless the worth of that payment is not in the real property that he was purchasing. Yeah. Um, one of Clarence Thomas's first defenses for all of this is, you know, Harlan Crow is our friend. And as friends do, he lets me use these things and he gives me these gifts. And a few thoughts on that. First of all, they became friends after Clarence Thomas got on the Supreme Court. So it's not like they like, oh, grew up well, together and they're childhood friends. <laughs> Dahlia Lithwick wrote a really good piece about this, and I forget what it's called, but if you Google, you'll find it. And she basically was like, is Harlan Crow friends with any of you? <laughs> no, he's not, because you're not a Supreme Court justice. This isn't, I mean, Harlan Crow used the word simpatico to describe uh, how he feels about Clarence Thomas. Mm -hmm. And it's like, right, well, right, because he's a Supreme Court justice, not because he's Joe Schmo yes. off the street whose political views happen to align for himself with yours. Like there's Clarence has a utilitarian value to Harlan. That's why Harlan is not friends with you and me. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you spoke to, you know, his Clarence Thomas's mother is still living in the home. Harlan has fixed it up. One wonders why Clarence Thomas didn't fix up his mother's home if it needed this fixing up. Uh, Oh, oh, because it turns out that Clarence Thomas is a terrible person. Did you see the story about uh, his, his sister? sister? Yes, please go ahead. So for people who, who don't know this, and I think it was Jay Willis who tweeted about this, and I think there's some news story to go along with it, but a long, long time ago, Clarence Thomas said just some awful things about his sister essentially being a welfare queen, and because she got on welfare, she would never be off it. And really portraying her as this deadbeat and like everything that embodies why Republicans don't want people on welfare because they're just sucking at the teat of the state and mm -hmm. not being making themselves useful members of society. And in fact, it turns out that what actually happened and I'll fudge, I'll, I'll, I'll fudge some of the facts here because I, I can't remember exactly what the article said, but it was along the lines of, I think she was a nurse or something. She quit her job because she had to take care of a sick family member. Yes, one of his family members too, by the way. One, yes, one of their, yeah. they're in the same family. Yeah, exactly. Yes, one of their family members, she quit her job to take care of them full time. That is when she was on welfare and that was temporary. And now I think she works as a registered nurse or something yeah. like that. Mm -hmm. And so his story about her not only insulted her and denigrated her and devalued everybody who needs welfare, which is paltry in the first place and a mm -hmm. subsistence living, denigrates all of those people and is inaccurate. I mean, can you, what kind of person do you have to be to do that to your own sister? To put your using your on public blast. platform. Yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> It's disgusting. It, one thing that you notice in the ProPublica article, the very first one, uh, when he talks about how he loves going to the Walmart parking lots, he's wearing a polo shirt of the super yacht, super yacht that he would ride on with Harlan Crow. So he's like, right. oh, I'm in the Walmart parking lot. I'm the man of the people while wearing my shirt for this like, what, 40, 50 million dollar well, boat that I get to tour the Greek okay. Isles with. <laughs> Let's not forget. Okay, so number one, yes, Harlan Crow has somebody make yearly t-shirts yes, exactly. for everybody who comes on these little tours. 
And I forget what ProPublica said they thought the value of that trip might be, but I think it was like in the hundreds of thousands. I think they of said three hundred thousand like, is what they valued it. Okay. <laughs> okay. Clarence Thomas also allegedly, you know, when you go on these yachts, you tip the staff. Yes. And it is supposed to be a hefty cash tip because they are like waiters. They are providing you a valuable service and they're probably not being paid appropriately. If you watch Below Deck, you know how important the tip is. (laughs) Yeah. If you know, you know. Allegedly, Clarence Thomas's tip was to give the, I don't know if it was the captain or whoever, a signed copy of one of his own books. <laughs> I didn't hear that. Because <laughs> it's supposed to be like thousands upon thousands of dollars for a tip yes. for these people. <laughs> it should have been like at least, I mean, look, I don't go on super yachts, so I'm speaking of a position from ignorance here. Uh, but I would think at least 10 to 20%, yeah. but like bare minimum. And by the way, you're on a trip that maybe would have cost cost $300,000. I'm pretty sure if you could afford a $300,000 trip like that, you can pony up a lot more than thirty dollars or $60,000 as a tip to show your appreciation for the people who cater to your every whim for days on end on this stupid little boat. But and he's like, here's a book. The gift is the exposure to him. That is his tip, is being able yeah. to be proximity to Clarence Thomas is a tip from him. Um, so Clarence Thomas uh, is terrible. And then <laughs> Don't do that. Well, there's, there was another story after that. I mean, we all know that his wife is batshit crazy. Um, we all saw that with the January 6th hearings, but we discovered that there was another entity that was paying her like $25,000 quote, 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 unquote salary. But you know, there's texts back and forth. They're like, but keep it off the books. So she's been receiving this money off the books from another conservative entity. And all of a sudden, people- wasn't it ultimately Leonard Leo? Yes, who is in the president of the Federalist Society and who is the architect of the Republican takeover yes. with right wing extremists of our court? Like he's the architect of that. And he wasn't he allegedly the one who was funneling this payment through yes. Kellyanne Conway's organization. Yes. And he's like, oh, of course, keep keep uh, keep Jenny's name off it. Yep, exactly. And Leonard Leo, Harlan Crow, Clarence Thomas, in Harlan's house, he has this massive painting of him with all of these right-wing figures, including those men, sitting at the fire pit at the at his home, his compound in the Adirondacks. Um, so they're all together in this painting. And then we find out Harlan Crow, kind of a weird guy, possibly a bad guy. I don't know. It just depends on whether you think collecting mounds of Nazi memorabilia makes you a weird or bad person. I don't know. Open to interpretation. Well, I think, and the five to four podcast does a really good job of articulating this, but uh, Nazi memorabilia, not easy to come by. It's not just laying around. Like you can't go on eBay and find it. Well, And there are lots of brokers who like will not sell it. They're like, no, I'm not having any involvement in the peddling of Nazi memorabilia. And Harlan Crow evidently has a lot of it at his estate here in Dallas. So that's a super weird hobby. <laughs> and people came out to defend him and they were like, no, no, he collects it because he wants to remember all the bad things that happened. That's why he has this like garden of evil in his backyard where he commemorates. Well, you have to explain, 
you have to explain the Garden of Evil for people who may not have read the article. He he has sculptures of I know you put me on the spot, but like linen, and yeah. he has basically some Milosevic, com- yeah, some communist memorabilia and sculptures of these people in this Garden of Evil to commemorate how evil they are, so we never forget. Which first of all, bullshit. Like seriously, bullshit. And second of all, everyone was like, oh, so he keeps all his Nazi memorabilia in the Garden of Evil? And it's like, oh, no, that's in his home. That's in a special place in his home. Yeah. So it's like, <laughs> let me understand how this works. Because I just have like some Monet prints mm-hmm. hanging in my house. So this isn't my vibe. But <laughs> let me explain how that let me let me see if I understand how this works. I'm going to go hang out in my house and look at my vast collection of Nazi memorabilia that I probably had to work very hard to get and contemplate the evils of the Holocaust, supposedly. And then I'll stroll out in my gardens so that I can see statues of various people who committed terrible, terrible atrocities in the past which he also has told reporters, I think, for the Dallas Morning News, that he had to work very hard to get out of Europe. (laughs) And it's just like, and people defending him again are just like, oh, no, it's just like a purely academic interest. It's like, okay, who else do you know with these academic interests? Yes, (laughs) it's wild. It's like, you know what movie I hated? I hated American Beauty. Like, I'm sorry, I can't stand that movie. I hate it. I think it's terrible. I think it's pretentious. And that's why I keep it on a constant loop projected on the inside of my home. So I never forget how bad that movie is. (laughs) And I can ruminate on how much I hate that movie every single day. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And then are you going to talk about Clarence Thomas's nephew? It's his nephew, right? It is his nephew. Um, and my brain literally just blanked on it. So you can go on that. <laughs> okay. And again, it's been a while since I've read about this. So my brain might be fuzzy on the details. But again, our good friend Harlan, oh, uh, Clarence Thomas, yes, apparently this, yeah, his nephew took in he became his legal one guardian. of his nephews. Mm-hmm. Yes, became his legal guardian, I believe. Again, we might be a little fuzzy on the details, but I think we're going to be correct about the overall yes, picture directionally here. correct. Clarence, Clarence Thomas became the guardian of his nephew, took him in, has essentially raised him as his own child, and sent him to an extremely fancy pants private school. Guess who paid yes. for his tuition? Mm-hmm. Oh, Harlan Crow. Harlan Crow. And again, <laughs> I go back and people are just like, oh my God, can't anybody do anything nice for anybody anymore? It's like, I go back again to what Dahlia Lithwick said. It's like, Nobody paid my private school tuition. You know why? Because my parents weren't on the Supreme Court and they weren't useful to a local billionaire. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's 100% transactional. And we should note again, this was not disclosed by Clarence Thomas. And under all of the regulations, all of the laws, this is objectively something that should have been disclosed. Clarence Thomas did disclose something else with his nephew, which kind of shows that he mm-hmm. knew he was required to, and he made the conscientious choice not to with this instance. Well, but he's also had his hand slapped before mm-hmm. for either incorrectly disclosing something or failing to disclose something. And I forget exactly what the details were on that, but he's screwed this up in the past. And you would think that somebody committed to the legitimacy and transparency mm-hmm. of the court might be concerned about getting this correct because your legitimacy depends on people believing that you are not bought and paid for. So it's weird 
that he continues to have these uh, oversights in disclosing all of these things that Harlan Crow is buying for him. And it's funny because I know some conservatives have been like, what if it's a liberal justice that does all this? I'm like, kick him off too. Like, this they, is a, yeah, good. Yeah, bye. Bye. Yes. This is clearly, the, I mean, who knows? You can't say for a, without a doubt that he's corrupt. The implication of corruption here is so strong and ridiculous. Kick him off. If they've done it, kick him off. This is a real easy call to make. Yeah. Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye to anybody. Like, Congress I, I don't care. If does anything useful, they would be looking into this, but we don't. So here we are. <laughs> <laughs> here we are. So I actually, with that last story about the nephew's tuition, that actually really cr- cracked me up because I was like, you know, we're just at the point where there are so many things that have happened since 2016, where you're like, if you tried to write this in a novel, your editor would tell you that it's just too obvious and like too stupid a plot. <laughs> Nothing like nobody's going to believe yes, this. It's yeah. Yes. You- <laughs> and yet here we are. <laughs> it's like, what's next? Because like, I mean, I just I have a hard time believing that. Harlan Crow can be the only one. Oh, yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. He's he's the one billionaire. He kept it to himself the whole time, this dear friendship that he made with sweet Clarence Thomas. And he's never shared this means to gain access to one of the most important people in the country with any other person who may also have that means. Well, <laughs> or set aside what Harlan Crow is doing, if... Clarence Thomas feels so safe in exploiting his connection to a billionaire that he's going on all of these fancy trips. He's accepting payment for real estate that he owns. He's accepting payment for a nephew's tuition. Mm -hmm. Why would we believe that that's it and that that's the extent of it and that he's not also open to largesse from anybody who's willing to provide a sizable enough benefit? Yep. What a great place. This is... Yeah. <laughs> like we said. Love it here. Bobbing Let's along just, uh, at speaking, our level I know, of despair. Speaking of, <laughs> speaking of hopping back into the river of existential despair. <laughs> so that is Clarence Thomas. Um, many more hot toppies that have come up um, since our last episode. So we will catch up on a lot of those, I'm sure. Um, at some point, yeah. Yeah, at some point. We have a running list of like little topics that we definitely want to talk to each other about and you guys get to listen. <laughs> well, let me let me move us into our main topic. And I think I'm not exactly sure, but I think this is going to be a three episode arc. I'm so excited for this. When you told me this, I was like, <laughs> I have been texting you nonstop since last weekend because I just happened to stumble across this and I was reading most of these documents as my husband took the first leg in our drive home from Florida. And I have been tingling with excitement since. (laughs) Let me ask you, JJ, what do you know about the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power? Literally zero. I did not know it existed until you told me. You told me, (laughs) don't look into the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power. And I was like, don't worry. I won't. (laughs) I was like, no, but be extra sure that you're not digging into the LA Times archives about this. Well, good. Let me tell you, it is the largest municipal utility in the United States. 
It provides water and electricity to millions of people in and around LA. It has a multi-billion dollar annual budget. And it is governed by a five-member board of commissioners. And it has a general manager to run things. He's like the boss of Mm -hmm. the Department of Water and Power. The DWP has been through it. (laughs) It is my opinion that this has been and continues to be a trash organization, but (laughs) no pun intended. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they don't do trash. They just do electricity and water. But they, back in 2009, they had a billing system that was 40 years old. (laughs) So they decide that they need to modernize and move to a new billing system. They hired PricewaterhouseCoopers, PwC, to build the new system, to migrate data from the old system to the new one, and then flip the switch to start using the new billing system. And this contract with PwC was worth, I think ultimately it was worth about $70 million. So there's a lot of money mm-hmm. wrapped up in this. And also you're performing an extremely important function, which is selling people electricity and water billing them appropriately for it and collecting on those funds. For people not in Texas, um, we have private companies do that for us and we're just used to them screwing us over all the time because there's no regulation yeah, for that. That's why, what, like 50 people died in the oh, no, 200. In February. 200. Oh, sorry, my bad. Yeah. 200 people died in mm-hmm. February 2021 because uh, our utilities didn't have enough capa- capacity, hadn't modernized their plants, and we didn't have enough electricity to keep people warm. So 200 people died. And we've already been told this summer where here in Dallas, it gets up to like 115 degrees mm-hmm. for days on end, that we are not going to have enough electricity to keep us cool this summer. So prepare for that somehow. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, things are great here in Texas. We hate it. In September 2013, this new system that PwC was supposed to help develop and roll out for the department went live. This was an absolute disaster of epic proportions. In later court filings, the department alleged basically that PwC screwed this up so badly that there were critical meter configuration defects so that meters couldn't read properly, that uh, more than 10% of all meters across the city in the area that they they serviced couldn't function properly. The department couldn't bill customers at all, or they sent incorrectly estimated bills and improper late notices. They alleged that in quantifying the revenue loss associated with only the inability to bill 10% of their commercial customer accounts. So this is like a fraction of commercial only, not including residential. They estimated $11 million per month in lost revenue. They claimed that between August 2013 and September 2013, they had had a $168 million drop in overall revenue build. Customers got wildly inaccurate bills. So there's one guy who I think he had a 1,400 square foot apartment and he gets like a $1,700 bill for one month. (laughs) And because people had heard about this scandal, this was a very public scandal. Mm -hmm. Customers with legitimate bills are like, well, I'm not paying this because how do I even know my bill's accurate? Like, how can you even tell me it's right when I've heard all this other stuff? So absolute scandal, total embarrassment, and the department lays it all at the feet of PwC. 
and basically says, well, not only did PwC defraud us into signing this $70 million agreement, they completely failed to do what they were supposed to do. And that's why we're here. No responsibility on the part of the department at all. Couldn't have anything to do with them. In 2015, the Los Angeles city attorney on behalf of the department sued PwC for breach of contract and fraud. The city had various attorneys from the Los Angeles city attorney's office representing it, but they also had outside counsel representing them as well, including Larry Lawyer. Oh, yay. (laughs) Larry was a New York licensed attorney who, as best I can tell, was known for class action work in the IT space. I also want to emphasize that as far as I know, at no point in time during any of this was Larry licensed in California. Ooh, that's a chill up my spine. But he helps, and I assume he like pro hoc in in this case, but he helps the Los Angeles City Attorney's Office file this lawsuit. It's 57 pages long, 209 paragraphs. It goes into great details in the accusations about what PwC was responsible for and how it screwed it up. I mean, it essentially, it's a lawsuit, right? But it's functioning as a press release yeah, as exactly. well. Mm-hmm. About six or seven months after the city files its lawsuit against PwC with Larry's help, the Department of Water and Power's board awards Larry's law firm a $1.3 million no-bid contract for Larry's firm to provide non-legal project management services in connection with the department's ongoing remediation efforts you just made a face. Yeah. Um, I don't know that I hear often of law firms getting non-legal project management service no-bid contracts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And Larry is actively litigating this case against PwC too, right? Mm-hmm. Which seems... Like, given the scope of the allegations and the alleged misconduct and the scope of remediation needed, should be like close to a full-time job, right? But he gets this $1.3 million contract. Six months later, the department's board extends the project management services contract for another year and increases the value of that contract by $4.7 million. Oh, that's a hefty increase. (laughs) So on top of whatever the city is paying Larry to litigate this case against PwC, he's basically set to pull in like $7 million in a year and a half doing project management stuff. Clearly the expert in this as a for project management. <laughs> Pretty good gig if you can get it. Exactly. The city was also facing multiple class actions from disgruntled customers related to this whole debacle. So the city filed its lawsuit against PwC in March 2015. About a month later, a Los Angeles resident filed a class action lawsuit against the city. By August 2015, four months later, the parties file a settlement agreement to resolve all claims on behalf of the class for this whole like screw up related to billing and all that. This results in a $67 million settlement, including $19 million in attorney's fees for the plaintiff's lawyers on the case, which seems to me like a pretty good outcome if you're a plaintiff's attorney. For four months of work. F- <laughs> yeah. Four months of work yeah. with maybe whatever investigation you had to do, right? Mm-hmm. This $67 million settlement immediately becomes an element of the city's damages claim and its lawsuit against PwC. Naturally, yeah. I mean, basically, yeah, right. Like, (laughs) if you hadn't screwed this up so badly, we wouldn't be paying out this settlement, so you should be on the hook for this. 
This settlement also required the Department of Water and Power to undertake various specific remediation Mm -hmm. measures. Like, hey, I know you guys say you're working on it. Like, that's what you've been telling the press. But now we're going to put it in a court order and we're going to be able to enforce it against Mm -hmm. you if you're not doing these things and meeting these timelines. This is such a mess that the court appointed an independent monitor in the class action case to make monthly reports to the court about the city's Mm -hmm. progress in implementing the various remediation efforts on schedule. In May 2017, maybe a year and a half after the parties file this proposed settlement agreement, the independent monitor files a report with the court in the class action case. And it's a fairly lengthy report, but it does have a very small section in it where the independent monitor says that the department was grossly understaffed in the IT area and desperately needed to procure IT services through an outside vendor if it's going to do these various things Mm -hmm. that it is obligated to do. Now we're going to meet the department's general manager at the time. This is Bob. Bob, all right. (laughs) Bob is a career public servant in his 50s. He's getting close to retirement. He started his career after he got his MBA at an accounting firm, and he audited various government agencies. And pretty soon after that, he starts working in public utilities, and he works his way up the ladder until he's hired as general manager for the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power in 2015. And he's hired right before the city sues PwC, and he inherits this gigantic mess, and he's essentially brought in to clean it up. Yeah. I also want to point out, I'm sure that this is significantly less than Bob's counterparts in private companies, but I believe Bob was making about $500,000 a year at this point as a public with servant. the DWP. Yeah. That feels like a lot. Mm-hmm. Almost immediately after this May 2017 independent monitor report saying, hey, the IT department sucks, Bob starts pushing for the department's board of commissioners to approve a $30 million no-bid contract with a company called Aventador to provide IT services to the department. And I do want to pause for people who may not be familiar with government contracting. I mean, typically, there may be some dollar threshold where if you're getting goods or services, you don't need to get competitive bids Mm -hmm. from multiple vendors. You could just go buy it, right? Because you're like, whatever, this isn't a lot of money. It's fine. But generally, as a steward of the public trust and the public's money, you need to go get competitive bids from multiple vendors to ensure that you are getting the best quality services or goods at the most competitive price, right? Like that's your obligation to the public. But here we have this $30 million no-bid contract. And I believe the dollar limit for no-bid contracts at the DWP was (laughs) $150,000. So just a little bit over it. (laughs) Yes. This is for a company called Aventador to provide IT services to the department. And Bob points to the independent monitor's report and is like, this is an emergency. Like we're in a settlement deadlines. Mm -hmm. We got to do this. Let me tell you some things about Aventador in this contract. I have seen this contract. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to pause. You have some experience with looking at contracts, I would say. I've done so many contracts exactly like this. (laughs) And that was going to be my next comment, Mm -hmm. which is typically for contracts like this, you're going to have a services agreement that has your all the party's generic obligations, right? Privacy, confidentiality. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Sure. Like indemnity, limitation of liability, all that kind of stuff. Then you are going to have a scope of work that details the actual work to be done. And there's a wide range in the level of detail that you see in various scopes or Mm -hmm. statements of work. But 
typically, if you are the one buying the services, you want more detail because it is really hard to tell somebody that they didn't do what they were supposed to do if your piece of paper doesn't say that. Mm -hmm. This SOW is one page long, and it's basically <laughs> like, yeah, Ventador is going to provide consulting services. Is that what it says? <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, basically, it's one page long. The other thing about Aventador is it had been formed less than two months prior. Of course it had. <laughs> Here's the other thing. It's Larry's new company. I was just about to say, and Larry owns it. <laughs> it yes, he does. He does. <laughs> Larry has determined that because of some pesky California ethical rules, he cannot use his law firm to provide non-legal services to the department anymore. So he's like, well, I'll fix that. I'll just form a company that's like not my law firm. So he forms Aventador. He's an entrepreneur. Oh, girl, buckle up. <laughs> he is an entrepreneur. He's a crimeaholic. I, <laughs> I don't want to oversell this, but I think I'm going to blow your fucking mind, but we'll see. Line employees at the department are rightly like, well, this seems sus. Yeah. Like, even if Larry's been doing work for us for, I don't know, like two years, why are we giving him a $30 million no-bid contract? And there's someone in supply chain services who gets wind of this, and she immediately is like, what is going on? First of all, she points out, and and she does a memo about all of this later. Good for her. Like Bless her heart document. for doing that. Yes. <laughs> She's like, number one, this is a contract for IT services. Nobody in the IT department has been involved. <laughs> like, Nobody at all has been involved in scoping this out and determining that's necessary and what in-house expertise we might need. So, like, that's weird. Generally, you're going to have your stakeholders involved in this. She also pulls fees from would-be competitors like Oracle and KPMG and Navigant, and she sees that the fees Aventador is proposing are, like, astronomically higher of course they than are. the would-be competitors. The other thing she notices is, again, like typically when you have a lot of these engagements and you have consultants working on stuff, in your SOW, you're going to put in a list of the people working mm -hmm. and their hourly rates and then mm -hmm. what percentage of their time they're going to commit to your project. Mm -hmm. And so it's not unusual, as you know, too, because you also have done a lot of this. It's not unusual to have your worker bees committed full time or almost full time to a particular project. Mm -hmm. And then you have somebody overseeing it who, because of their expertise and their rate, they're going to be on your project something less than full time yeah, because presumably, yeah, exactly, right, or fifteen percent or whatever <laughs> it is, because part of their job as manager is to be managing multiple projects, mm -hmm. and their hourly rate doesn't make them efficient to be full time on your project. Well, one of the things she notices is everybody is full time <laughs> on this project at these astronomical rates. She also keep in mind this is uh, what is this like twenty seventeen? Yeah, twenty seventeen. She's like, look, normally for a thirty thousand or thirty million dollar contract, I would expect this stack of paper to be six to eight inches high. Yeah. And this is maybe like, I don't know, a quarter of an inch if you're using thicker paper. <laughs> I mean, it is like thin. She also looks at the proposal and she sees the address. She hops on Google Maps. She a woman after puts my the own address heart. in. <laughs> I love this woman. She gets in her car and she drives by this address. She's like, Google like, Earth we're not is not enough for me. View. I am going to go no. scope this out myself. <laughs> street view might be outdated. She drives by it and she sees that it's a house. It's Larry's house. 
So she's like, where is the overhead coming from? Like, mm-hmm. he has some people listed on here, but, like, he doesn't have rent. He doesn't have utilities besides his house. Like, he's not running copy machines and stuff. Like, where is the overhead? She's also totally appalled that they're doing this without even doing competitive bidding. She's just, like, flat out for $30 million. That's not appropriate. Yeah. So she tells her staff, she's like, I'm not having anything to do with this. And normally this would go through her for approval. Mm -hmm. She has them take her name out of the approval system. (laughs) And I think it's a subordinate that actually approves it. And she, I think, tells the subordinate, look, I can't fire you for approving this. Like, I don't have the authority to fire you. I mean, the implication is like, if I could, I would. Yeah. I don't have the authority. I'm not having anything to do with this. So take that into account if you're going to sign this. She also reaches out directly to a board commissioner, which she's never done in her whole career. She's another, she's another career employee. She's never done that. She reaches directly out to be like, this is crazy. You shouldn't sign it. There's also an IT systems supervisor who finally gets wind of this. And the day the board of commissioners is set to vote on the contract, he emails Bob and says, quote, as a citizen, as a ratepayer, and a DWP veteran, I was concerned on several levels to find out about the Aventador contract. I'm concerned the contract is being awarded to a company with no track record I could find. The only reference available to me for Aventador shows the company existing for a three-month period. Please realize I am truly concerned about this department. I am not attempting to grandstand or be flippant. And you can tell he feels like he's stepping outside his comfort zone to mm-hmm. email basically like the head of the department, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so let me pause here and take your temperature on this $30 million no-bid contract. How are we feeling? Does this seem legitimate to you? (laughs) No, not even a little bit. And by the way, I don't know if you know this, but uh, Aventador is a model of car by Lamborghini. So... Oh, that's really funny. No, I had no idea. Yeah, so that's why, because I was, I was just like, I have heard this so many times before. So I was literally just Googling it. I was like, that's what I thought. <laughs> it's the Lamborghini Aventador. So that's where the name came from. But so anyway, um, okay. knowing that too, uh, I have questions. It's a little sketch. Yeah. I'll just let the cat, the cat out of the bag here. It is in no way legitimate. <laughs> no. Over- <laughs> <laughs> Plot twist. <laughs> Over the course of the last few years, since becoming general manager of the Department of Water and Power, Bob and Larry have become extremely tight. Larry regularly took Bob out to dinner, to sporting events, on and his to super other yacht to the Greek Isles. Fa- <laughs> probably like fancy shit yeah. about town. Bob was required, because he is a public official, charged with directing the largest municipal utility in the United States with a multi-billion dollar budget. He's required to report all of these as gifts to the state of California Mm -hmm. to comply with various anti-corruption laws. Do you want to guess whether he did? Oh, absolutely not. If Clarence Thomas doesn't have to, Bob's not gonna. (laughs) He definitely did not. (laughs) Let me tell you what these two have been up to. About a month before Larry Lawyer formed Aventador, he and Bob met at a hotel restaurant. And Bob, uh, Larry tells Bob about his idea to form this new company. Unclear exactly how the conversation unfolds, but what these two knuckleheads land on is that in exchange for Bob pushing this contract through, Larry would make him CEO of Aventador after Bob retires from the department, (laughs) give him an annual salary of a million dollars, and buy him a new Mercedes SL550 as a company car. And and I don't know if you saw this. I crowdsourced this on Twitter. 
because Mercedes doesn't make the SL 550 anymore, and I wanted to know how much it costs. And according I didn't see to this. my very reliable <laughs> sources on Twitter, back in 2017, a new SL 550 probably would have cost between a hundred thousand and a hundred twenty-five thousand dollars, like base. Yeah. So we're getting CEO title, million dollar salary, and we're getting ourselves a very, very nice Mercedes. A million dollar salary for a company that does nothing and has no plans, clearly, other than landing this one contract. Right. <laughs> now, remember, a month after Larry forms Aventador, the independent monitor in the class action files his status report being like, hey, the IT department sucks and the department totally needs to hire somebody. Mm-hmm. There's something I haven't told you about the independent monitor's report. Oh, no. How many twists are we going to have? Do I need to take, like, blood pressure medication for all these twists? You might. <laughs> and I'm not even sure this is going to be the best episode. <laughs> Unbeknownst to the court or the lawyers representing the class, but known to multiple people at the Department of Water and Power, Larry ghost wrote the independent monitor's report. <gasps> I was going to make this joke. I was going to make this joke. How do- <laughs> In fact, he had ghostwritten many of the independent that monitor's reports. That's not a thing that's done. Like <laughs> It's wildly corrupt. I have been in situations where there's an independent monitor and the <laughs> the idea of a party Is this something you do? Is this a best practice? No, this is shockingly not a best practice to have one of the parties counsel. Also, potentially a contractor with said party said to benefit from <laughs> at the same mm-hmm. time their counsel. You don't write the independent monitor's report like this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so he forms a Ventador. He ghost writes this report. Before he sends the ghostwritten report to the independent monitor for filing, he emails it to Bob to ask if it gives Bob... (laughs) He's taking notes on a criminal conspiracy. (laughs) To ask if it gave Bob what he needed to push the contract through the board of commissioners. And Bob is like, sure does. Shut up. Sure does. Good job, buddy. Good job. Yeah, these guys did a lot of things by email and text. Thank God. God bless him. Bob and Larry are determined to get this contract through. Before the board vote, Bob texts Larry and says, we will get this all done and fuck anyone that tries to get in the way. <laughs> just big words for a man who works in utilities. I was just about to say, that's uh, that's the full might of the Los Angeles power and gas department. <laughs> <laughs> water and power. Yeah. yeah, power and water behind him when he says that. <laughs> Right before the board meets to vote, the general manager sends uh, Bob, the general manager sends the board a memo about the contract. And he's basically like, look, we thought about contracting with other vendors, but it's not feasible because the amount of time that it would take to do a request for a proposal and then for a new vendor to get up to speed, like, we just don't have the time. Mm -hmm. When the board actually does meet, again, Bob quotes this independent monitor's report that Larry Ghost wrote about how understaffed and shitty the IT department was. He straight up tells the board that the department was not going to be able to meet its obligations. Such is my dedication to the craft that I actually watched this portion of the meeting because it's online (laughs) still. (laughs) And it's less than 20 minutes long for a $30 million no-bid contract. That's not a lot. Most of that time is Bob basically being like, well, look, I can give you a 30 or 45 minute presentation if you want it when the board's already been meeting for almost two hours. Mm-hmm. He's like, well, Naturally. I could just summarize it in a few minutes. And they're like, OK, summarize it. And 
He says, to summarize and put it bluntly, we brought a system online five years ago that was a failure. We overbilled three quarters of our customers that resulted in a class action lawsuit by those customers. What I look at is that we are five years into the system and it still isn't working. And again, he says, look, if we tried to do a formal RFP process, that's going to take nine to 12 months. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, why would it take nine to 12 months? Yeah. I mean, that's not my experience with RFPs. (laughs) Right. I mean, it seems like you should be able to get this done faster than that. But he basically says, well, everybody working on this billing system is either brand new or they're about to retire. And the board just sort of accepts that like, oh, okay, I guess like nobody can write an RFP then. But it's like, well, how are they doing anything else? Yeah, exactly. Like, this doesn't make any sense. They're still making some contracts, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that's what Bob has said. Do you think the board members have anything else to say about this? I'm sure they just rubber stamped it, it sounds like. <laughs> the board president is the one to speak after Larry concludes his little presentation, his mini presentation. And he's basically like, well, I don't need a longer presentation. And then it's not even a discussion of like the merits of this contract or the scope of Aventador's work or qualifications. He says, quote, I want to compliment you, Bob. <laughs> And he talks about how Bob came in when this was a complete disaster. Quote, your job was to get things fixed, particularly in the area of customer service, which had become a humiliating embarrassment. It's remarkable that you've retained your composure through all of this. It requires someone with extraordinary composure to have done that, which you have done with extraordinary professionalism. Oh, professionalism. And then he says, I don't think we have any choice but to do what you're recommending, because if we don't end up meeting the requirements that have been imposed upon us by the court, the disaster that will befall us at that time will make the last one look like child's play. And then another commissioner basically echoes those sentiments like it's so difficult. They do decide to have an oversight committee, but otherwise there's no substantive discussion and they unanimously vote to award this no-bid $30 million contract. <sighs> Around this time, Larry also gives Bob a quote-unquote secure laptop and an Aventador email account to use. But it's not like Bob at Aventador.com. It's some other name that if you just looked at it, you wouldn't know that it was Bob's name. <laughs> Clearly on the up and up. <laughs> yeah. Also around this time... Bob and Larry and other Department of Water and Power people go on a delegation visit to Israel. I don't know why. They're just over in Israel doing business stuff. <laughs> just apparently. Ask why. Supposedly. <laughs> yeah. Some sort of boondoggle. Yes. Timing's a little unclear, but in 2018, the DWP also suffered a cyber attack. So while Bob and Larry and the DWP people are over in Israel, Bob and Larry meet with executives from a global cybersecurity company that had franchises in the United States. And what they decide is, well, let's open a franchise in LA. How? (laughs) He is an entrepreneur. (laughs) Girl, I'm not even like, we're not even close. (laughs) My guy stays busy. (laughs) It's not hard to see where this is going, right? Like you open a franchise and then you use Bob's power and influence at the DWP to funnel cybersecurity contracts to this company that you own. Are they not checking like beneficial owners of these companies when they do these contracting? Like this is insane. I think they knew because I had the same thought and I think they knew that these were all Larry's companies 
they just didn't know that Bob was involved. And they're like, well, we like Larry. He's helping us sue PwC. Like, he seems like he knows what he's doing. This is why we bid for contracts. (laughs) Right. Like, they're literally making the case of why we have competitive bidding. They decide Larry's going to invest $5 million to open this franchise. He's going to have the controlling interest. Bob will also have an ownership interest. He gets like the sweat equity piece. Oh, yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Never be the sweat equity guy. That's my my, uh, investment advice for today. (laughs) (laughs) Bob basically floats this idea to Larry like, well, we are going to have the DWP purchase five years of cybersecurity training at the franchise facility in LA at a cost of $3 million per year. So $18 million over the course of five years, we're going to funnel towards this new cybersecurity franchise. And they agree that Bob is going to help push this through, right? And Bob even uses his Aventador laptop and email account to revise Larry's draft written presentation to (laughs) the board of commissioners of the DWP, touting Aventador's new cybersecurity capabilities and credentials this is so comically corrupt (laughs) (laughs) it's like when i was reading all of this my jaw basically unhinged like a snake and fell to the floor (laughs) like i feel like my botox right my nose bridge is wearing off from how much i'm like burrowing my brow here You're really, you're really putting that Botox yeah. to the test. So in January 2019, Larry's, Larry enters into a joint venture agreement with this Israeli cybersecurity company. But things have been percolating relating to the city's lawsuit against PwC. All this time, Larry has continued to be the city's outside special counsel in its lawsuit against PwC. So he's had this $7 million consulting contract. Mm-hmm. He's had this three-year $30 million contract. He's looking to get another like $18 million contract. And he's still getting paid for the PwC work. Our next episode is going to be about the class action lawsuit against the city. But what I will say right now is that things start to come to light in the PwC lawsuit related to Larry's involvement, not only in the PwC lawsuit, but the class action lawsuit. And questions start percolating about, is this guy a bad guy? Why does he have seem to have so many like irons in the fire with the DWP? The board, because of all of this, votes to terminate Aventador's $30 million contract. But They say they will retain Aventador's services if Larry sells his stake and disavows any ownership interest in it. So he can sell it to Bob. (laughs) So I don't know who he sells it to, but he purportedly sells his interest to another employee, but not really. Yeah. Like, he's basically, he owns it. He's running things. Mm -hmm. This is, if he actually did anything, it's just like all on paper. And he's like, yeah, we're good. And then because we have like besmirched the Aventador name, they rename the company Ardent. Okay. And they basically tell everybody, yeah, like we've got this new company, Larry's out, it's ardent, but Larry's still running things behind the scenes. Bob and Larry, again, plan for Bob to use his position to help get this new contract for ardent. But at this point, Bob's like, well, look, for me to push, like I'm trying to retire here, Mm -hmm. like I'm getting close to retirement age, I want to retire. For me to get this contract through and like get you situated so we can start getting the money flowing, I'm going to have to stay at the DWP longer than I thought. So how about you up my ownership interest in Ardent and give me a quote unquote sign on bonus of $600,000 to $1.2 million. Bob even refers to Larry as his quote ATM. (laughs) 
always great when your public servants do that to their contracting yeah. entities. <laughs> <laughs> it's like public integrity 101, yes. right? At the same time, like I said, the heat is turning up on the city's relationship with Larry. People are asking questions. The LA Times is reporting about Larry, the lawsuit against PWC, issues in this class action lawsuit. And there essentially is like a real cloud of suspicion. Mm-hmm that is starting to hang over Larry. You're Bob. What do you do if your ATM is coming under extremely intense public scrutiny? You got to protect that ATM at all costs. It's your meal ticket. So what do you like? What do you think? What do you do? I guess I'm running interference for him at the uh, at my job and with the board. I feel like my inclination would be like, hey, we need to like let this blow over. Like, let's hunker down. Mm-hmm. Maybe cool things for a bit. Mm -hmm. Instead, what Bob does is he goes to Larry's house in late March 2019. He gives Larry back the laptop that Larry had given him. And he's like, wipe it. And also, here's my phone. Wipe that. Let's destroy all of this evidence. He also wants Larry to get him a burner phone. Now, here's the reason we know this. I was about to say. (laughs) Larry began working with the FBI (laughs) about a month earlier. He is wired to the gills and he is recording everything. Amazing. And so Bob's like, this is where I think I texted you. And I was like, oh my fucking God, I can't believe this. And I'm like, is it a sting? <laughs> it's a sting. It's my favorite. The way you say sting is the way Lucille Bluth is like, Jean Parmesan. On her <laughs> and I love... I love that Larry is wired and he's like, sure, I'll take your laptop and your phone to wipe them. Just leave them with me. (laughs) To be clear, you want me to wipe these to eliminate all evidence of your criminal intent, correct? And he like leans (laughs) forward with his lapel. (laughs) Well, and in fact, Bob tells Larry during this conversation you're the tech guy, you got to do the laptop and the phone because I've already gone through my office at the DWP and destroyed any physical evidence there. And I can imagine Larry being like, say that again. Say less. Yeah. <laughs> he also wants Larry to get him a burner phone. So a few days after, and Larry's, I guess, just like, yeah, sure, I'll make that happen. Yeah, I'll get you a I'll burner get you phone, the, the FBI will procure you the greatest burner phone. <laughs> So a few days later, they do a dead drop. (laughs) They go to a cafe in downtown LA. Larry gets to the cafe first, and he sits near the back with a paper bag with a supposed burner phone in it. Mm -hmm. And I am just going to send you a screenshot of Larry sitting at the cafe. (laughs) Do you want to describe the picture at all? (laughs) The picture is from like eight tables away. And it is, there is not a soul. Very clear. Not a soul sitting between where this picture was taken and where Larry is sitting. And he's sitting in the back of the room in like the back chair with his back to the wall, all alone, staring at his phone. And the bag is just sitting there on top of the table. Like it's a takeout bag that he has just sitting. It's, this is like, (laughs) if you were to look at something and be like inexperienced man trying to do a dead drop uh, stock photo on Google, this is exactly what it would look like. (laughs) Yeah. He's like, I've seen a Jason Bourne movie. I'm pretty sure I can do this. I've watched the Americans. (laughs) 
And here is the photo of Bob leaving. And this one's a little blurrier, but you can also see it's from not that far away. I mean, it's blurry only because yeah. Bob is moving in yeah. it. Bob's leaving the cafe. Very nonchalantly holding his brown paper bag. He's wearing a full suit. He's got a red tie. He's got and his he's name badge hanging from bag. his belt. Yeah, he's got his badge. And there very clearly is an FBI agent sitting at this table, just like, <laughs> click, 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 <laughs> click, 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 click. And yeah, and the way that it worked basically is Bob, uh, Larry gets there first, Bob walks in, Larry gets up, he goes to the restroom, he leaves the paper bag on the table, Bob swipes the paper bag, and he leaves before Larry comes back from the restroom. So <laughs> amazing. Good job to our junior Jason Bournes. Mm-hmm. And then after the dead drop, Bob does urge the Board of Commissioners to support a new cybersecurity contract for Ardent. In early June 2019, the FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office come knocking on Bob's door for an interview. No way. <laughs> what, do you, what do you think you're doing if you're Bob here? What Bob should do is call his lawyer and shut the fuck up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> do you think Bob does that? I don't think Bob does that. I think you Bob- sure about that? <laughs> You sure about that? Uh, I'm pretty certain Bob thinks he can talk his way out of this problem. Yeah, he basically tells them that he didn't have any financial or business interest in Aventador. Oh, Arden, let's add some process any, crimes to all of this. Yeah, <laughs> any company that Larry was associated with. And he's just like, nope, golly gosh, I don't know what you're talking about. About a month later, the FBI raids the Department of Water and Power headquarters. It also raids the Los Angeles City Attorney's offices, (gasps) which we will get into in our upcoming episodes. Do not Google this. I won't Google it. (laughs) The whole thing collapses. In late December 2021, so over a year later, the U.S. Attorney's Office filed a plea agreement with Bob. He pleads guilty to bribery. Do you want to guess his sentence? (sighs) Probably like. Two years. Six years in federal prison oh, wow. and a $75,000 fine. Wow, that's much more than I was going to expect. <laughs> but I'm not done. Still less than Jim Jimerson, by the way. This guy is in charge of the largest pu- public municipal utility in, in the country, so <laughs> I kind of get it. I have some other things to tell you about how busy Larry Lawyer was. Let's go back to that first $30 million no-bid Aventador contract. You know, Bob is the general manager, but there are five members of the board of commissioners. Mm -hmm. Allegedly, in the weeks leading up to the vote, one of the members on the board started making noise about not voting to award Aventador the $30 million contract. He also, right around this time, according to Larry's subsequent plea agreement, starts asking Larry for free legal advice. (laughs) And Larry gives it to him because he knows the vote's coming up. Yeah, absolutely. According to Larry Lawyer's plea agreement, on the day of the vote on the $30 million contract, he ran into this board member outside the meeting room, and the board member thanked him for his legal help and said something to the effect of, you take care of me, I take care of you. I like how explicit they are about their corruption and all of this. <laughs> right. Uh, according to Larry. <laughs> yeah. And let's keep in mind, I mean, this guy at this point. He's, he's you know, singing for his life I, this at this is point. In his yeah. Plea, yeah, exactly. This, yeah, this is his plea agreement with the United States. So he says that ultimately he and his firm performed about $30,000 in free legal work for this board member. Larry never seeks payment. The board member never offers it. At some point, Larry brings this up to Bob and Bob's basically like, look, this guy just got appointed for another four years on the board. So Mm -hmm. draw your own conclusions about what you should do here. Mm -hmm. Now, this board member has never been publicly identified. I have a good idea of who I who it is, though. But nobody has been charged related to this particular escapade. Mm -hmm. I'm still not done. Larry had a lot of irons in the fire. A lot. The DWP also had a chief information security officer, what we call a CISO. Mm -hmm. 
This person ultimately reported up to Bob, our general manager. There is an organization called the Southern California Public Power Authority, the SCPPA, which is a collective group of 11 municipal utilities. This group includes the Department of Water and Power in LA. And basically the way that this works is at the request of a member utility, the SCPPA can facilitate joint service contracts. Like basically we're going to use our purchase power, our purchasing power collectively mm-hmm. to negotiate a contract that's going to benefit rates, us all. Yeah. Around the time that Larry claims he divested himself of ownership of Aventador and starts Ardent, Bob asks the SCPPA to issue a request for proposal, an RFP, for a cybersecurity services contract. This CISO for the DWP also happens to be on the SCPPA's cybersecurity working group. So he takes the laboring oar on drafting the RFP. He is also one of the four people who are going to score the responses to the RFP and make a recommendation to the working group about who the SCPPA board should contract with. He agrees with Larry that he's going to give Ardent a really good score and persuade other members of the scoring committee to do the same, basically by being like, well, here's my score. What's yours? Oh, no. Like, I think Ardent should be higher. Lo and behold, the working group recommends awarding the contract to Ardent. The CISO on that same day meets Larry at a restaurant. By this time, again, Larry's working for the FBI. He is wired up like a cyborg. (laughs) The CISO tells Larry at this meeting that he steered the bidding process to Larry's, quote, desired outcome, but tried to make it look, quote, completely transparent. (laughs) And a couple of weeks later, the SCPPA board approves a contract for Arden and two other vendors that's valued at $17 million. Shortly after that, though, the city of Los Angeles tells the DWP, look, you need to rebid these contracts through your standard Mm -hmm. procurement process instead of through the SCPPA. So a few months later, the DWP issues an RFP for a three-year, $82 million cybersecurity consulting services contract. Would you like to guess who drafted the RFP for this $82 million cybersecurity consulting services contract? Oh, I bet Larry did. Well, it was the CISO, but he shared drafts of the RFP (laughs) with Larry and took edits from Larry to essentially try and like craft an RFP That's that would correspond nails. to Arden's. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Where they're like, oh my gosh, Arden's perfect for Look this. Look at all these requirements. We fit so perfectly. What a coincidence. Yes. So he drafts the RFP in conjunction with Larry. And then on the other side of things, he also edits Arden's proposal in response to the RFP. (laughs) So he's on both sides of this. I know some government contracting attorneys listen to this podcast, and I wonder how much their mind has exploded at this point. (laughs) He also, after Larry submits Arden's proposal, Larry texted the CISO that after I submit the proposal, quote, it will be up to you to manage the evaluators the same way you did for the SCPPA, so that we get the correct result. Winky emoji face. <laughs> please please continue committing crimes, just like the last time you committed crimes for us. Thank you. <laughs> With emojis. And then the CISO texts back, I know my job, <gasps> crying laughing emoji. <laughs> God, how fucking embarrassing would that be when you're on your trial and you're a criminal defendant and your cr- crying laughing emoji is blown up in like 90 point font on the screen in front of a jury? When they uh, filed the CISO's plea agreement, these emojis are in the plea oh, agreement. I'd rather die. <laughs> like I would just yeet myself to Mars instead yeah. of dealing with this. Goodbye. <laughs> 
So about a dozen potential vendors end up submitting proposals. The DWP CISO was one of seven members on the DWP's evaluation committee that is responsible for looking at these proposals and deciding who's getting this $82 million contract. And they all signed an NDA that says they're not going to discuss their scoring on the proposals with anybody, including each other, mm-hmm. like while they're undergoing this process. Like it's supposed to be completely independent. Yeah. Whatever your thoughts are, you're going to do it. Don't talk to anybody else. We'll do that later. And after it, so CISO, uh, the CISO texts Larry that basically like, this NDA is really harshing my vibe. Like it's really hard <laughs> to influence people when I'm contractually not supposed to be talking about scoring with them. But he does it anyway. He texts Larry later that he'd provided two of the evaluators with the Cliff's notes of his thoughts. And basically he, what he did is he gave them his score sheet. <laughs> I gave them the Cliff's notes or the entire damn thing. <laughs> right. And just completely threw our NDA yeah. out the window, whatever. And then he was trying to lobby other people. And he's telling Larry this at lunch the next day. During this lunch, Larry's like, so what are your future employment plans? And again, Larry wired to the gills. And the CISO is like, well, funny enough, I'm interested in working at Ardent no as its business manager. <laughs> and they don't really get into specifics. But of course, Larry's totally amenable. And I mean, like, even if you're paying this guy a million dollars a year, right? Like, it's an incredible ROI yes. to land an $89 million contract. Oh, yeah. He thinks, like, this, this CISO thinks. He doesn't know Larry's working with the FBI at this point. So at this lunch, they agree the DWP's CISO is going to create a written job description of the role he wants at Arden, <laughs> along with his terms and conditions. The CISO later texts Larry and is like, hey, who's your CFO? And Larry tells him, well, I've already got one. Why are you asking? And the CISO is like, oh, you know, I'm scoping out my roles and responsibilities for my new job. And via text, they land on chief administrative officer of Ardent. But there's a problem other than just the rank corruption oh, oh, and many oh. crimes. <laughs> <laughs> in violation of the public trust. The CISO is close to retirement age, and he learns, he actually goes and meets with people in the DWP's retirement benefits department and finds out, hey, if you retire early to take this job, you are going to lose $60,000 a year in retirement benefits. Like his pension will take a hit, yeah. (laughs) Basically. So he goes to Larry, and he's like, I'm going to lose $60,000 a year until the day I die if I do this, if I leave early. Larry's like, $60,000, no problem. But if I'm going to guarantee additional comp for you, you need to guarantee additional things for me. And the CISO is basically like, not a problem. (laughs) I can guarantee that when you get task orders for more cybersecurity work, even beyond this $89 million contract, we'll make sure we can push between $10 and $11 million a year towards you. I mean, in exchange for this like $60,000 a year, right? Fair deal. Yeah, absolutely. So they (laughs) totally, they also settle on what the CISO describes as a signing bonus. Like basically, and similar to what Bob Mm -hmm. also attempted to negotiate, like I have to stay on at the DWP longer, so we'll compensate you for it. And at the end of this meeting, the CISO tells Larry, well, I'm not going to tell anybody about this. Like this is just between you and me and the wall. And the entire even Department says, quote, of Justice. FBI. <laughs> yeah, and the FBI. He even says, quote, my wife is not even going to know. She has to be able to attest. So I'm going to do this bribery. I'm going to get you tens of millions of dollars in ill-gotten gains. And on top of all that, I'm going to use my unwitting wife as a character witness. Mm-hmm. He also asks Larry for a secret ardent email address and an ardent laptop to work from. They settle on Francis W at Ardent.com, which is nowhere even close to the CISO's name, (laughs) like not even in the same universe. 
He says he wants the laptop so he could, quote, do all that work with no evidence anywhere else, quote, and because if anything happens, I just give you the laptop back and it's lock, stock and barrel and I don't have anything anywhere else. See, look, he's thinking like a CISO. He's good at his job. (laughs) He gets Larry information about another RFP that Larry had said he was interested in. And the CISO's comment was it was such a small amount that it was, quote, not even worth it for us to fucking bother, end quote. We, when I crime, I only want the high value crimes. Thank you, Larry. <laughs> <laughs> Shortly after this uh, is when the FBI raids the DWP's offices, and then they show up to interview the DWP CISO. You're the CISO. What are you going to do here? I am going to shut the fuck up and lawyer up. But again, these guys are too clever by half. And so he's going to try and talk his way out of it. That is exactly right. He tells the FBI he had not expected any compensation from Larry, and there were no arrangements for any current or future employment. Two days later, the FBI comes back for another interview. (laughs) You're the CISO. What are you doing? Still talking. I'm still going to be like, listen, no, I misspoke, but or you misunderstood what I said, but here's the real answers, and then I'm going to get even deeper in a hole. He doubles down and he's like, no, I didn't have any arrangements for employment. Oh, no, he's stupider than I thought. I've never (laughs) guaranteed. Yeah, I've never guaranteed anything to Arden or Larry. The CISO's plea was filed. Plea agreement was filed in December 2021. They pop him only. There's one count. It's for knowingly and willfully making false material statements to the FBI. Mm -hmm. Would you like to make a guess as to his sentence for lying to the FBI? One year? Four years in jail. Oh, I think that was a, uh, he cop he copped to a minimal crime, but got a larger sentence for it. <laughs> he got slammed. Yeah. So let me pause here. Reaction to the story so far. This is so good. I can't wait for part two and potentially part three. <laughs> <laughs> Are you wondering at all about Larry, our very busy entrepreneur turned FBI informant? Yes, I want to know when the FBI showed up. I want to know how he wrote the independent monitor's report and how he got in that relationship. I want to know all about it. We are not done with Larry. We are not even close to done with Larry. I will tell you a few things about Larry before we close. One, the state of New York, where Larry was licensed, disbarred him. Prior to all of after this? He signed, okay. Okay. After, after he signed his plea agreement in November 2021. He still has not been sentenced. His sentencing date keeps getting kicked out, and a lot of the documents are redacted, but the gist of it seems to be cooperation in potentially ongoing criminal investigations. Ooh. The court seems to be fed up, though. In March of this year, the court in his criminal case issued an order saying it was continuing the sentencing hearing one last time to <laughs> June 2023. And the order says in all caps, bold, underlined, no further continuances. (laughs) So where are we going from here? Remember that class action lawsuit filed against Mm -hmm. LA that resulted in the $67 million judgment? We got to talk about that. And that is our next episode. I can't wait. This is amazing. I know the excited feeling (laughs) when you like get a story and you're like, oh, I can't wait. I'm so happy that you had it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, for the love of God, do not Google this because it's amazing. <laughs> well, I can't wait for next week's episode. So that's it. Yeah, I can't wait for next week's episode to continue this and then potentially a third. This will be our first three episode arc. Uh, yeah, I think there's going to have to be a third. Yeah, for sure. And to be honest, there is so much material here. I think I could make at least five or six episodes, but we are going to stop at three. <laughs> and then maybe at some point in the future, we will come back to the well. 
Amazing. Well, thank you very much for diving into this well and making sense of all of this. I can't wait to finish it. Um, for everyone that listened, uh, thank you again for listening. Don't forget to like us on iTunes, on Spotify, leave a review um, on your podcast app if you can. We appreciate it. We read every single one. And thank you very much, guys.